This was the first day that I just happened to have my flushing stick with me, so a nice six foot long, rigid stick. So my first reaction was to grab this, uh, pin the snake's head down with my stick, just so worse wouldn't come to worse. And then I'm sitting there looking at this, I'm going, I can't believe that bird has actually caught that snake. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Toll podcast. And we are continuing on with our series that is brought to you by the Arizona Falconers Association. It's been a real pleasure getting a chance to do these episodes for them. And I'm appreciative of them bringing me down to help capture some of the history of Arizona Falconry and bring you some of the stories from some of the Falconers from their state. So I also want to give a quick shout out before we get started to one of the newest sponsors of the podcast being Bobby Yaga Crafts from Poland. If you haven't had a chance to check out any of his amazing handcrafted equipment yet, I highly recommend you do so. I've personally used the anklets that he makes with the Marshall Easy Twist nut sewn into them. It's very convenient and I've really enjoyed using them the past couple seasons with my birds. So I know that if you haven't had a chance to check them out yet, you definitely won't regret it. If you want to contact them, the information is on our website at falconrytold.com. You can go to the links there and hit them up. It'll be well worth your time. And these next few episodes are the culmination of a lot of travel time over the course of a day through the state of Arizona. And I was happy to be able to take these drives and kind of check out the scenery again. It had been 20 years since I had been in Arizona last whenever I went to audio school straight out of high school. And so it was nice seeing kind of how some of these different areas had changed in that amount of time, which, <laughs> yeah, they've changed quite a bit. But at any rate, I was happy to be able to kind of go over towards the Sedona area again and uh, meet up with Randy Hale in the small town of Cornville and discuss some of the different aspects and experiences that he's had in falconry and kind of what he's had to do to work falconry around his careers and you know also kind of discuss some different cool things that he's done with Cooper's Hawks and and other species so let's go ahead and jump into this episode with Randy Hale here we go I'm happy to be here. It's, uh, it, you know, I, like I said, I don't mind doing the drives in these types of states and stuff because my heart, I think, is ever since I uh, graduated high school and I lived in Phoenix for about a year shortly after graduating, my heart has always kind of been in the West as far as at least the, the mountain-type terrain and the desert-type. It's, it's always been what I've really kind of enjoyed being around scenery-wise, so... I'm getting in at about two in the morning this morning and uh, and crashing for a few hours and then getting up and making the three hour drive here. Uh, the uh, the scenery, it always, like I said, it, it makes a three hours went by just like just like that, pretty much. So, yeah, like beautiful. I said, I, I appreciate you meeting with me. And that's uh, my pleasure. Yeah, yeah. So, I initially we we're going to meet at your restaurant. Yes. I know, but um, but so tell me a little bit about that real quick. I mean. How long have you kind of been a, a restaurant owner and like what what was the main reason that you decided to go in into that as opposed to just working a something else just more typical, I should yeah, say? I, I've, I've owned the restaurant for 17 years and um, I was in healthcare before. Um, as a, you too, huh? <laughs> yeah, I was a director of a medical clinic around medical mm -hmm. center and worked as a paramedic before that. So I've done a lot in, in healthcare. I was in product development before. Uh, with a medical firm and I was just kind of ready for a change yeah there was a restaurant that I used to go to and it had this four Michelin star Swiss chef it was food was fantastic and he wanted to sell the place he wanted to retire and so uh, my one of my first jobs out of college in fact my first job out of college was managing a restaurant in Flagstaff I just always enjoyed that and I had it in the back of my mind That'd be something I'd like to do. And when this opportunity presented itself, I didn't want to look back 10 years later and say, I wish I would have tried that. 
So I thought, well, I'm still young enough. I'll just jump right in with both feet. He was willing to train me. You can be trained by uh, worse people than a four Michelin star Swiss trained <laughs> chef. I'm sure. And it has served us very well. And so anyway, that's, that's kind of with the, the restaurant. Well, what type of restaurant is it? Well, he, he, it's known for German food. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's yeah. called the Manzanita Restaurant. Oh, nice. It's in Cornville. And he's the one that brought the German food uh, to it with his Swiss background. Uh, that was just a natural fit, and it worked very well for him. So we thought, well, why try to take this horse in a different direction? Mm-hmm. So our goal was to try to, as seamlessly as possible, uh, transition ourselves into it and not have anybody know that there was a, a change at all. And I think that has worked very well for us. People compliment us on that all the time. Yeah, people can tell pretty quick usually when there's a, a little bit of a change. It's amazing, you know, all these hardcore people that just are, you know, loyalists to some of these restaurants and stuff. I mean, myself included, there's there's a couple of, um, well, I mean, there's one German restaurant where I live that's pretty well known. And, um, you know, I mean, any any type of restaurant that you go to, you can kind of tell when there's a change, if you mm-hmm. go there like weekly or even yeah. a couple times a week or, or yeah. whatever. So, I mean, yeah, I'm props to you. I'm sure that was probably rewarding. You often can tell even from one chef cooking one night versus another cooking another night mm-hmm. that there's a little difference in the food. So I'm in the kitchen now and my wife runs the front of the house and I do the kitchen. I've got some great people working in the kitchen with me. Uh, so you know, I'm really happy with how that's going, but you're, you're absolutely right. We do a lot of other things. We do a lot of wild game, which kind of comes from my hunting background. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of steaks and fresh seafood. So we really kind of have uh, a pretty diverse menu. People compliment us on our menu all the time. But it has definitely more of a continental flair uh, in the menu design and the items that we, we offer. But it's, um, it's, it's, been a good, it's been a good run, you know, we... Yeah, I don't, I don't doubt it. I'm sure it's probably, um, I don't know, stressful in its own way, but not stressful like it would be healthcare stressful or doing that kind of thing. It's probably a different type. Well, right? I used to work as a paramedic, uh-huh. and uh, the the stress of owning a restaurant, I think, is uh, one of the one of the worst that you can have. <laughs> the the help situation, trying to find good help, making sure of who's going to show up. Mm-hmm. on any given notice and that they're doing the right things and that, you know, there's just so many variables uh, <laughs> that go on that um, I think the restaurant industry has um, uh, probably greater stresses than, than being a paramedic. It's <laughs> an interesting outlook. You know, I, like I said, I've, I've worked in different aspects of the different service industries throughout, you know, my mm-hmm. life as well. And, and having also been you know, in healthcare, the last 18 years as a, as a respiratory therapist, you know, it's, it's one of those things. I think that, yeah, I mean, unless I owned that, I probably wouldn't be able to completely relate to it. I mean, I know I have a couple of really close friends that, that own uh, bars and, and own businesses like that. And they, it's kind of funny. They said almost the same thing as you, especially right now with the way everything mm-hmm. is, it's really hard to find, you know, good, reliable help. And, you know, it's kind of funny when you can walk into like White Castle or someplace right now and make 15 an hour, you know, or more. Or more. Yeah. And hell, that's almost what a starting paramedic yeah. makes or yeah. an EMT makes, yeah. you know. So, well, I mean, and as far as, you know, I mean, you said you kind of lived around Flagstaff before. I mean, how long have you lived in, in this area? And, and was it was it kind of falconry then that kind of brought you to this area or was it other circumstances and you've kind of had to, to mold other aspects of your life, including falconry around that? Yeah, that's a good question. It was jobs. <clears throat> and originally I came out from uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma to Flagstaff on a wrestling scholarship in the seventies oh. and, um, had an uncle that lived in Sedona and we would come out and visit him throughout the sixties and early seventies. And when I got old enough to do anything about it, cause I, I just loved the area. I did came out to Flagstaff ended up just staying. So I lived in Flagstaff for 25 years and then about 2000, 2002 moved down to this area. And it was basically a job situation that, that did that because I was commuting between Sedona and Flagstaff and I was living in Flagstaff. And I thought, well, we'll move down to, you know, the Sedona area. And then my job transitioned shortly afterwards where I was working back in Flagstaff. 
and so I was having to commute back up the hill and and it's a beautiful drive I think it's one of the most beautiful drives in the country between Sedona and Flagstaff but it's still an hour each way out of your day and with my schedule I just thought you know that might that might not be in my best interest and so when this that that was one of the issues with the uh, the restaurant I thought you know it'd be nice to have a restaurant there and of course I, I thought I was going to be this yuppie MBA owner operator walking around shaking people's hands <laughs> that was shortly before bought the place shortly before the economic recession hit mm-hmm. and that changed everything and I quickly realized at my wife's prodding that I needed to be in the kitchen and that's where I ended up and have been there ever since and and uh, but I, I enjoy it I, I enjoy cooking uh, always enjoyed cooking just in the house but cooking on a commercial level is completely different as a whole nother level um uh, than than just cooking you know for yourself you know in, in, a, in a house in a home kitchen i'm sure so. i'm sure yeah and uh yeah having to meet people's um expectations or what their own personal perception of expectations oh, are absolutely and, you, yeah. you mentioned earlier about making a transition a seamless transition is always difficult because of people's expectations and they're looking for something well, this isn't quite how Albert used to do it. And <laughs> a funny story, I did have, uh, Albert came in and he was showing me how to make roulade, which is a German dish where you take a steak and roll it up and stuff it with different things. Albert made them. He was showing me, teaching me how to make these things. That night, we served those roulade, and I had a customer come in and just bitterly complain that this isn't how Albert changed it. You've completely ruined this restaurant you've changed everything <laughs> and i'm sitting there trying to tell this guy well sorry sir but albert made that roulade <laughs> he wouldn't believe me he, he he just he had his mind made up that that wasn't the way it happened and that i had completely changed everything and all the <laughs> recipes had gone downhill and and you do find that but as a whole people are very complimentary and in fact albert he's still alive he's in his 80s now almost 90 and he comes in and he's so proud of what we've done. And that means a lot to me. Yeah. So, I mean, just out of curiosity, uh, <laughs> have you ever, uh, you know, had any of your, your birds or anything in and around the, the, the restaurant at all? Like, uh, have you, has there ever been any times where, you know, you've kind of been in, you know, on, uh, like uh, really strapped for, for time schedule wise or anything, and you've had to, you know, kind of bring him around or where any of the customers yeah. could see him or anything like that? Or I, I have a muse and a kennel for my bird and my dog out back at the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> With my schedule, I was able to go out and fly in the mornings mm-hmm. and then get into the restaurant. And so that worked well to have some facilities there where I could do that. Because otherwise, then you had to, from wherever you were out hawking, you had to go back home and drop everything off and and as you pointed out, sometimes time just doesn't allow for that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I figured they're probably. That's why I was curious, is because being probably, I don't know, as ate up with it as long as you probably have been, because you've been doing this a very long time. I know, and you know, I, I can only imagine probably whenever you were initially thinking about getting into owning that kind of business and stuff, probably one of the first things on your mind was all right, so how am I going to revolve or, you know, how am I going to like adjust everything around what I like to do and where am I going <laughs> to, how am I going to make this work to, to be more convenient for my lifestyle? And, uh, yeah, I can imagine probably one of the first things going through your mind is, all right, where can I build? <laughs> it was absolutely. No, you, that was, you're absolutely right. Because you think, yeah, I'm going to make this huge jump in, in my, my vocation. How's that going to fit into falconry? And initially, like I said, I thought I was going to be this yuppie MBA walking around shaking people's hands. And I thought, yeah, I'll have all sorts of time to go out in, in the mornings and such. <laughs> and that didn't work as I, as I had hoped. We were doing lunch and dinner uh, at one point seven days a week. And that didn't work because you're just there all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you really want to do it right in a restaurant, the owner is there. And especially when you're the chef. And, and, and so it just really cut into it. When we bought the restaurant, Albert was open for dinner only five nights a week. And we always thought that'd be a nice model to retire into. And uh, with the recession, we, we had opened up lunch because people had shifted from doing more dinners to lunch and kind of 
downgrading their, you know, the price ticket of, of meals and everything. So we thought we'd take advantage of that market and it worked for us. But then at some point we realized that one is just killing us because it, it's, it's just a lot. And especially if you have an active lifestyle and you want to go do other things. Um, so we quit doing lunch, cut back two days. And so now we're in that same scenario that Albert was where we're just doing dinner Wednesday through Sunday. We're open from 4 to 8 p.m. And that helps a lot because then at least you have two days off where you can kind of recover, mm-hmm. kind of recover, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then your mornings so that you can go out and do things, you know, in, in the mornings and fly your birds and all. But it definitely is, is an issue. I mean, the, the, the people that I admire in falconry, the ones that I think really make these huge contributions where they um, have these birds that just are unbelievable in, in what they do, they're the ones whose uh, lifestyle allows them to really get out on a daily basis and spend extended time doing that. And um, so uh, that, that's always been a goal of mine, but, but for various reasons, like going off my medicine for a week, and that's long enough to buy a restaurant. No, <laughs> just kidding. But, um, you know, it, it, it definitely is, is a, um, uh, a factor in you know, what our next moves are and things. So completely understand. Yeah. Totally understand. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I can only imagine, I know we were talking briefly before we started recording too, about, uh, you know, kind of how, well, the evil C word kind of affected the last couple of years. I mean, did you end up having a lot more time to fly during that couple of years or were you still, even with restaurants being shut down and stuff, were you able to, or were you still kind of stuck there a lot, even though there really wasn't business going on per se? Or yeah, stuck there a lot would be a good word for it because there also <laughs> weren't employees around at the time, <laughs> so yeah. you're tending to do everything. Um, we did lose a number of employees just because of their uh, concerns about um, their exposure to it if they were in a restaurant. Because if you'll remember. Uh, the powers that be were saying that restaurants and bars were one of the worst places that you could be in. <laughs> so customers and employees tended to want to stay away. And so you ended up doing everything. And, you know, so you were there still quite, quite a bit. Yeah, I can only imagine probably how that would have been a bummer. And, you know, the more you're there, obviously, the less you're going to be able to be out in the field. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, were you kind of having the same schedule then, you know, where at least you were able to, to at least have two to three days able to, to fly your birds oh, yeah. and stuff or yeah. during that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, like I say, still, you know, the mornings can go out, but you're not able to do those real extended trips that, that I find so meaningful, you know, when mm-hmm. you... Um, you know, just, just for example, if, if you're flying falcons on ducks, sometimes you have to drive. <clears throat> the, the beauty about the West is there's so much national lands. Access is unlimited. But the downfall of that is that access is unlimited. So Bubba and everybody else mm-hmm. are out there, right. uh, you know, duck hunting or jumping the same ponds that you're trying to jump. I remember one time I was out flying my peregrine. Or, or driving my duck circuit, and there was a car that was kind of following behind me, and I could see as I was pulling out from a duck pond, this this vehicle was pulling in. They ended up racing up after me and saying, "Why are you flushing all the ducks? Why why are you scaring all the ducks off our off our duck ponds? We're trying to to hunt." They were gun hunters, and they thought that I was someone that was out there flushing ducks ahead of them to keep keep them from shooting these Mm -hmm. poor innocent and defenseless little ducks (laughs) so we had a great conversation and i flew my bird for them and they were just enthralled with it but i thought it was interesting that that uh, they would have taken that approach my point with all of that though is just that when there's so much public land you do have a lot of competition and so finding those spots that are like your little secret honey holes are really difficult and you have to drive, uh, I think, longer than what many other places uh, consider acceptable to uh, uh, to be able to have good flights. And that's one of the reasons why I'm not flying the long wings right now, because with my schedule, I just can't guarantee that I'm going to be able to get out and do that. Mm-hmm. So I've been flying the short wings uh, for the past number of years. 
but uh, I'm I'm looking at getting back into long wings now. I, th- I think it's I think it's time to time to revisit that one. Yeah, I got to scratch the itch again, so That's to right. speak. That's right. Yeah, I I can understand, especially if you end up becoming like a dedicated long winger, I, and are used to seeing those types of flights. And if you get addicted to that, I can understand that everything else would be just kind of like yeah, you know. I mean, like I got, I've discussed many times before with with people. I mean, what you like is what you like, and if you can't do what you really, really like, then yes, you can do all the other stuff, but it's not going to be, mm-hmm. it's not going to feel as rewarding, or it's not going to feel like it's as yeah. worth your time as much and stuff, so yeah. I'm, I, I can understand that. Yeah, when I first got the restaurant, I, I had a, a peregrine um, that I got from Gary Alton out in California, a little uh, Tiersel Peels, and that bird was absolutely amazing. It would... Um, it loved to fly and it would tackle anything that I flushed off a pond. It was, it was hitting Drake mallards and canvas backs. It was, it was a small tiercel. And so he wasn't really able to hang on to them. Once he got to the ground, he'd, he'd get thumped pretty good. But every time he would, he would knock one of those ducks down and bring it down to the ground. And um, I just realized that that was, one of the best birds that I'd ever flown had the most potential of any bird I'd ever flown. And I was doing it an injustice, keeping it on my schedule. And I ended up giving it to a falconer up in Idaho. And he was telling me later that the first time he had that bird out to his, to one of his pheasant fields, it knocked down five different pheasants, didn't catch any one of them because it's the first time he'd ever seen a pheasant, Mm. but he knocked them down and he's going, wow, this is amazing. I mean, and the bird ended up doing outstanding. In fact, that tiercel took third in the sky trials. Mm. And for a a tiercel peregrine to do that is is a pretty amazing feat. So I was happy that I was able to give that bird to somebody that could utilize its full potential, but it just kind of shows the uh, limitations sometimes of owning a restaurant and flying falcons. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's a downside too, because you know how it is. You've been doing this long enough, you know, way longer than me, even the you eyes, know, nobody usually gives up good birds. Yeah. You know, yeah. usually if a bird's getting rehomed, there's, there's typically some kind of yeah. reason. Yeah. There's a reason it. people get yeah. birds away. And I, that's, I, I can truly say that's one of the few times that I know where, where the reason was, was absolutely nothing to do with the, with any problem with mm-hmm. the bird. Right. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, you know, that's, <laughs> that's usually why, you know, yeah. there's, there's, there's something going on or whatever the case is. And not always the case, you know, for sure. I mean, I've had to rehome a, a bird for different circumstances and stuff too. And, and it's never, it's never easy having mm-hmm. to give up a bird mm-hmm. that you've helped train or not helped train you, but you, that you trained, and was doing very well and stuff, but for whatever reason, you just feel like it's going to be better yeah. off elsewhere, yeah. you know, for whatever circumstance. Yeah, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it, it's just another one of those falconry pitfalls, I, I guess. I was yeah. friends with Frank Bond over in New Mexico, and he made a comment to me one time that I thought was really profound. He said, you should treat every bird like it's the very last bird you're going to get. And, you know, you, you plug that into your falconry scheme and you say, well, I really should work through these problems because that's when you truly learn. And that was his point with it. He says it's so easy to just give a bird away because it's not performing like you want it to. The fact is you see the same problems continually pop up with the same falconer. And so you look at that and you say, these birds perform exactly as we've trained them. It may not be what we think we're training them to, but they perform exactly as we train them. And, and Frank's point was to really develop as a falconer, you need to work through that and you need to keep that bird and try to change that behavior and figure out what's going on with it. And I, that's, that's been, a, uh, I think, a very sagely advice from, from a good friend. Yeah, yeah, and I agree with that <laughs> wholeheartedly. And it's a very good point that, I mean, there, there's been other guys that have kind of, said similar things, but not like necessarily in the same words, you know, I've had discussions with and conversations with and, um, yeah, it's, it's really, 
easy for us as human beings to forget that we're usually the root of every problem. <laughs> and, you know, if we're not willing to acknowledge that or look at ourselves and just be like, all right, what the hell am I doing wrong? You know, what, yeah. what, what can I do differently? Cause I know that there's something I'm doing wrong. Well, you know, as they say, the first step to, uh, fixing a problem is admitting that you have one yeah, and right. it's not always easy, you know, especially whenever you think, you know, that you've listened to people, you've tried taking advice or whatever that have had more success with a certain species or whatever that, that you know, that you have, and you've, you've done all these things that in your mind that you think is what you're supposed to be doing and you're still not getting results that you want. It's even harder. Sometimes it's like, yeah. well, this, you know, is the bird really just not suited for it or is there still something, you know, it's, it's so yeah. hard to tell sometimes. Yeah. And there certainly are examples of birds just not being suited for things. You sure. Know? Absolutely. Uh, um, of course. Yeah. yeah. But I think in, w once you make it past that initial period and you say, yeah, I'm going to work with this bird or not. And, uh, then you start developing problems they are probably the same problems that you had with the last bird you had and the bird before that, that you've had. And, you know, the saying, the last thing a fish will ever discover is its own scales is, is really true because we can talk to other people and get advice from other people about, Oh, how do I overcome this behavior problem with my bird? But it's your scales, so to speak, that are causing the issue. And sometimes even though the advice you've been given may be very sound, you can't fully incorporate it because your scales are blocking the full absorption of that little gem of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, and unfortunately there's only so much, um, there's only so many years that we have and right. there's only so many seasons that we have and opportunities that we have. And, uh, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think that a large majority of us are always going to, you know, probably end up being on our deathbeds thinking that, well, crap, if only, if only could have gotten that one thing to work right or whatever, but I, that's part of life, I guess. It is. Yeah, it's, it's part of life. Yeah. But, yeah. um, but no, I mean, yeah. So as far as just how you kind of got into falconry, I know you said that you, you know, I've been doing this since what, the 60s? Yeah, 1967 was when my brother Gary and I got into it. There was a guy that lived across the street. He had a red-tailed hawk, and we just thought that was cool. And uh, so we started reading. First book that we read was My Side of the Mountain, knowing that that, of course, would impart full wisdom of falconry techniques. But anyway, it was a wonderful book. We just loved it, and that really sparked our interest. And so at that time, you could buy birds. Really, birds were just completely unprotected. I mean, you could shoot birds. Uh, there were many areas that still had bounties on birds. At any rate, we ended up buying some birds from some guy that had a bunch of hawks in his backyard, and we thought that'd be pretty cool. My brother got a red tail, and I got a great horned owl. <laughs> and, uh, you know, off we went from there. You know, you'd, you'd try to find books on falconry, and... Uh, they were, uh, you know, we there there were some out there, um, <clears throat> you know, so we were at least able to, to get something and start reading up, but there was no sponsorship technique. I mean, this was before the, the regulations were put in place in the 70s, and which I think were a, a, a wonderful advent, you know, and having that body of falconry knowledge come together, um, you know, through the sponsorship program and through the clubs being organized and things like that. So you could finally start sharing and learning and things from others that had been there before so so your first bird was a great horned owl great horned owl yeah <laughs> yep. all right so how did that go um <laughs> well he uh or, or she as it was um actually she was coming around pretty good and and um she was flying to me in the garage and you've always i've always heard that uh, great horned owls after their eyes turn in the nest are untamable, but I was having surprising luck with this bird. Um, unfortunately, my ignorance uh, led to the bird's uh, demise because uh, I didn't have a good setup. We, we had no idea about a muse, uh, so we kept them in the garage, and on the day I put them out in the yard and uh, just had this log that was his perch. But before I got home from school, the sun was starting to uh, shine on that area and I asked my mom to be sure and 
move that log at a certain time, which she said she would. And when she went out to do that, the bird was sitting on the side of the log she was going to move, so she didn't. And I was going to be <laughs> home shortly, and the sun got down, and he uh, it, it it did him in you know, amazingly quick. But and I'm not blaming my mom. Sorry, mom. <laughs> um, you know, but it, it it was totally my fault because I didn't have things set up like I should have. I didn't have you know, proper perches. I didn't have any, I, I had no idea, you know, what to do. This was the very first bird I ever had. So I'm, you know, going along, oh, 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 got a bird. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And mom would take, we, neither my brother Gary or I could drive yet. And so mom would take us out driving through the country. We'd be looking for red tails. We had no idea what we were doing. It was amazing how few red tails we'd see. Well, that part of Oklahoma is full of red tails. I mean, you can go back there now, and, and there's one on every other pole, but mm-hmm. uh, for some reason we didn't see them. And we'd see a bird flying, and we'd have Mom pull over, pull over. And we'd try to sneak through the woods and get underneath it, thinking it was going to somehow drop down and fall into our hands. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just didn't have anybody, just like you said, to, to tell you that, no, you got to. You got to do it this way, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, as far as you, know, you had the great horn and, and had that kind of uh, beginning experience, which, yeah, I mean, I think we can both mutually agree probably would not be good for anybody typically yeah. Yeah. <laughs> under normal yeah. circumstances. Like, I mean, what, what did you do next then? What kind of, what, what bird did you end up with next? Well, I ended up with a, uh, a marsh hawk next and, uh, <laughs> I was having a lot of fun with that bird, but my stupidity again led to that bird's demise. And uh, so then, you know, doing some red tails and, you know, other birds and hmm. uh, ended up flying some uh, Harris's. And that that was really what kind of changes it because, you know, Harris is uh, so smart and so easy to work with. They train you. Mm-hmm. If you it, let them. Yeah, for yeah sure. if you let them. Yeah. <laughs> it, it used to be that... Uh, apprentices could only fly red tails or kestrels and arizona has recently changed it and i think many other states probably have followed suit where an apprentice can have a harris i used to kind of fight against that thinking oh well i had to start with red tail i got you gonna start with red tail (laughs) but i've really come off of that because red tails are wonderful birds but i really don't think they're the best beginner's bird they tend to be a little stubborn they tend to be a little headstrong I think that the Harris is a much better beginner's bird because they just happen. I mean, they just do it. And and so you learn those techniques without having to figure through the problems. And that's what gives you the practice and the basis on how you're supposed to do it right. And then when you get a more difficult bird, you're in a better place to sift through those problems and, and better manage them. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting point of view, I think, because, you know, I think still probably most people are still going to think a red tail is going to be, you know, your better beginner bird, if nothing else, maybe because you're supposed to, at least here in the U S you know, you're supposed to have that sponsor that's there to show you Mm -hmm. that this is the problem that you're encountering with this, you know, potentially stubborn bird or whatever the case might be. And you're, you're having some guidance to work through those problems because as we kind of discussed before and, you know, I mean, you don't learn from success, you learn from failure Mm -hmm. typically, and you learn from problems. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know, like, I guess I could, I can see both ways because, you know, if, if a, if a bird like a, a Harris and you have guidance with that initially, and that's your first bird, if you, if you have a bird like that and you're able to do well with it initially, you know, I mean, and encounter less resistance up front, then, you know, I can see the argument of, well, you know, how much did you really learn in that scenario versus, you know, one versus the other. And I don't know, I I think that's probably why, you know, like in Indiana, for example, you can have a Harris as your second bird as an apprentice, you know, a captive bred and stuff. And I'm thinking that's probably why, you know, a lot of people still, you know, keep that, you know, as a, you know, one than the other type of deal or whatever. But like, as you said, every state's different in what they allow, but yeah, I don't know. But I mean, that's an interesting point of view. I mean, I can see validity in it, you know, but, um, you know, that's why everybody's perception is going to be different. I mean, falconers are never short of opinions by any stretch, (laughs) but, uh, 
but yeah, I mean, so I mean, as far as it, were, were you going to add anything else to that? Well, you can say my, my bachelor's degree was in education mm -hmm. and I had a education professor who made a profound statement. He said, you teach how you were taught, not how you were taught to teach. In other words, you mimic those behaviors mm -hmm. that teachers that you admired had. And that's how, what you incorporate into your teaching style. And so all the um, instruction from your professors about here's the right way to teach and here's what you do and blah, 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 <laughs> is secondary to you mimicking behaviors that you saw your, your professors or, or teachers actually do. And so I think that also fits with uh, people in general. If you look at uh, anyone from any uh, whether, whether you call it a, whether they're in a club, how they were treated in the club, how their indoctrination into the club, um, how they how they were able to start. You look at medical professionals; they were trained a certain way forty years ago, and what do they do today? They practice <laughs> yeah. how they were taught, not not with today's technology. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think that that is one of the issues that is around this red tail first versus Harris was. Well, that's how I was. That's how it happened with me, you know. But oh, you're going to do the same thing, you know. And, and I, I just think that's a, a stigma that maybe uh, we rethink. No, I I agree with that. And you know, I think some of the best sponsors are the ones too that are going to be like, also, I'm going to teach you this way. But over time, I do want you to kind of take what I've taught you, make it your own, and also. You know, whenever you start flying other species of birds, for example, that I, I might not have as much experience with, but if you can get direct help with other people that have, like, take what you can learn from other people and mold that into, mm -hmm. you know, what you also do yourself as well. I think there's a lot to be said for that and for the people that are, that want to teach that way too, as opposed to you need to always do it my way and never, you know, never deviate from that. And, yeah. you know, I mean, cause let, let's face it. I mean, there, there are all types of people that, that exist out there and not all of them really are meant necessarily to be the, as much knowledge as they might have, they may not always be the greatest teacher also, yeah, that's for sure. you know, so yeah, good point. Yeah. But I mean, I do agree, especially with the healthcare thing, because we see yeah. <laughs> you and I, have, yeah. I'm sure have seen that tons of yeah. times. And, yeah. and you know, I, I mean, even the way I try and mentor people like in my practice and stuff, that's how I usually like telling them. It's like, okay, I'm going to show you the way I do it. Yeah. And you're going to do it for a little while the way that I do it. But after that, I want you to start figuring out and molding what I do to fit your best method of how you do things. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. That's exactly yeah. what I like to do. Yeah. I just had a pair of apprentices, uh, Steve and Rachel Warburton, and they did it outstanding job of that because I, I like to present this is my theory and just like you're saying but but they actively sought other falconers and other resources and they were intelligent enough to sift through that and it asked demanding questions of me because and and, and I appreciate that in, in an apprentice somebody that's thinking on their feet and can sort through problems on their own and then come back to me and say well, what about this or what about that? And then I can give them my opinion and they can plug it in to, you know, what, what their reality is. And that's, that's to me what makes the, the best, um, you know, best, best falconers is, is the people that can think on their own. <clears throat> Going back when I was a paramedic, uh, Arizona, uh, I think has a really strong paramedic program. <clears throat> and one of the uh, driving principles of that is they want the paramedics to understand what is going on um, with the treatments that they're doing or with the condition they're seeing. They want you to understand the physiology and, and you know, the pathology of, of what's happening versus there are other places, and I won't mention names, but at, at the time I was on the examining board for the state of Arizona, and there was a paramedic from another large city where they didn't teach that depth of it. They just said, well, when you have somebody that's short of breath, give this little pink vial. And when they you have somebody that's got a, a, a fast heartbeat, mm. you give them this little red vial. Yeah. And, and the guy th in three times could not pass the Arizona 
test yeah because he was trained just wrote this is how you do it you give it this you give it the pink one you give it the red one instead of understanding what was behind it and that's kind of my point with the with the apprentices you really want somebody to delve into it on their own not just to be able to uh, regurgitate what you have have fed them right you know do as i say not as i do and and not understand no i like i said i completely one million percent agree and yeah i mean going back to that analogy too i mean it's it's scary what a lot of people coming into certain professions including healthcare professions are coming into it not knowing mm-hmm. now yeah yeah and you know just seeing in the 18 years that i've been practicing you know the the difference in what's coming out of some of these people you know especially now that everything's converting to four year bachelor's programs and stuff it's kind of scary at times to see what some of these students aren't getting foundationally. Oh, it's amazing. And, you know, and I, people are like, well, what's that? Well, it's got everything to do as far as the analogy, because you know, what we don't want as far as falconry is a lot of newer generations of falconers coming in, not knowing how to think and sort through issues and doing what's, what's best for their birds. I mean, we, we need to keep evolving, but at the same time, we need to also understand why the evolution is occurring. Too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Owning a restaurant, we see that firsthand. So many people can't even count back change. Um, oh, yeah. They, oh. They, can't, they can't add. Mm-hmm. First of all, they can't count back change. And they can't tell time on an on a old uh, face clock. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they ask me, hey, what time is it? And I'm looking at them and go, well, it's 10 o'clock. Look at the, look at the big hand and the little hand. You know? yeah. <laughs> and they, they don't get it. It's supposed to be digital. Yeah. One time uh, we had a, a table in of teachers, and one of them was a math teacher. And my wife jokingly accosted them about, why don't you teach these kids how to count and how to count back change and do these basic math skills? And his remark was, you don't need to. He pulls out a computer. They got these. I'm going, oh, my goodness. You know, yeah. it's like, what are we doing? You know? Well, and, and to, to kind of go in another step further, too, is you have a lot of people changing rules and regulations that don't teach or don't know anything about what's being taught. Either. That, that is so true. And once again, it's another good analogy yeah. to make as well. I mean, we don't also want a lot of different rules, regulations and things being changed if there's not a good reason mm-hmm. or understanding yep. why they're being changed supposedly for better yep. and things like that too, yep. which is another good reason why, you know, people need to, you know, be involved and, and, you know, kind yep. of be aware of what's going on, you know, with, you know, certain things and government yep. and rules and regulations. Well, just like in Tennessee right now, they're having some issues with, mm-hmm. with, um, how the person in charge of the falconry is interpreting mm-hmm. the regs of how many birds that you can have and everything else. There needs to be ongoing and, discussion and, and involvement for sure. Yeah, and you yeah. see the same thing in Arizona. You've seen it, it morph good and bad, but uh, it's it's so dependent on the person who's kind of driving all that. And so it's it's the, somebody somebody famous once said, uh, "Eternal vigilance is the price of freedom." Sure. So in, in regards to kind of how things have transitioned over time, you know, specific to, I don't know, specific to Arizona, mm-hmm. I mean, as far as your involvement in the club in the past and some of the different things that you've seen through time with some of those changes, like how has that been for you personally having to, you know, be a part of that? I mean, I'm, I know it's probably had its certain degrees of trials and tribulations dealing with you know, the, the DNR and different things and getting things worked out. But I mean, is there anything that you would kind of like to see happen eventually that would be different than the way they are now? Or Uh, that's a good question. It's, it's a mixed bag. In my opinion, I I used to be very involved with dealing with it's Arizona game and fish is Mm -hmm. a regulatory agency here. Um, used to be very involved with that through the club. I had been uh, very active in the club up until I bought the restaurant <laughs> and, and then the, the time just went away. I mean, you know, their meets are on weekends and I can't get away for meets and things like that. So I just unfortunately haven't been able to be active, um, within the club uh, since then, but who knows, maybe, maybe there's a future for me yet. I'll <laughs> get, get back with it. But, um, in dealing with game and fish years ago, um, 
I found that they were, and I don't want to say easier to deal with now, but the regulations were much simpler and more straightforward. And what I've seen over time is that the regulations are getting more complex. If you look at the Arizona regulations now, falconry regulations, they are very involved and cover things that you're going, well, that was covered two sections ago and you don't need to hit it twice because now it's confusing and, and this says a little different than that. They just, to me, you, you complicate it by adding more and more and more on. And I think that's, uh, and, and this may be wrong because I'm not as active with dealing with interacting with game and fish anymore, but it, it seems to me that they are very uh, oriented to um, kind of expanding the regs and having them cover every possible aspect. And in doing so, they complicate it when a simpler approach like we used to do you know, 40 years ago would, would work instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can understand that. I think that there's a lot of States that probably would feel that same way too, but you know, I mean, and I, I like to think that most States have a, a pretty decent relationship too with, and with their, I, I agree. And I think we do too. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we have, I know when I was active in the club, we, we really worked hard to keep a good relationship with game and fish. Very and important. I think as a whole, they're doing a very good job of it. Mm -hmm. I look at a number of things that they've done. I mean, um, Arizona was the first state to allow the um, capture of uh, wild peregrine falcons after it was delisted. You know, and that was largely uh, Bruce Talbert. Um, he was one of the game and fish um, executives, and uh, he, he played a, a real strong role in that. And of course, the falconers, falconry community was, was active in trying to support that. Um, they allow Harris's, for example, for um, uh, apprentices. Their capture season is absolutely outstanding. I mean, the, the, the season you know, limits and, and things that they have. So, I mean, there's, there's so many positive things. I, I'm not trying to paint um, Game and Fish in a, in a, in oh, a, in no, a negative at light at yeah, all yeah, with no. my previous comments. Sure. I think that they're, um, I, I think the club has done a good job of working with them. And we have some great seasons. We have, uh, you know, I, I think some really positive aspects of, of the regs. My point with the regs is that my bias is that it could be, they, they could be stated simpler and still kind of encompass some of these things. Sure. In the food service industry, not to uh, talk about the uh, restaurants again too much, but <laughs> you see things like the food code and you see where it started and all of a sudden where it, it just keeps going. You know, it's kind of the, the, the camel gets the For head sure. under the tent and before long you got the camel in bed with you. And I think it's so typical of any organization, whether it's game and fish or the, um, you know, the various health departments or, you know, whatever organization it is that once you get a power and oversight over an area that, you tend to keep building on that and building new regs that, oh, well, we need this. And, oh, well, this happened once somewhere. Mm -hmm. So, oh, we need a regulation for that. And I, I, to me, I just I think that it's overly burdensome. Yeah, I, I'm sure it can be at times. And, I mean, I think that is a, a potential, I don't know, a, a thing that can happen when you have to involve pretty much any kind of government entity mm -hmm. in anything. But... Like you said, normally, you know, if, if there's a good relationship, though, you know, I mean, if, as, as long as you're doing a, a good service to the, the yeah. community and stuff, it's usually not a, an issue. Yeah, thankfully. no, I, yeah, I, I agree. And, and yeah. I think we're there. I mean, I, I really uh, I, I really like the way the uh, falconry regs are enacted in mm -hmm. that. For sure. Um, you know, I think we've got some wonderful benefits. Uh, Game of Fish has been very uh, generous in, in what they're doing. Uh, in regard to that. So, you know, I, I can't complain at all. I just sure. making a few points. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, like I said, I, I'm always interested to hear how other States, you know, have kind of, well, what kind of process they've had to go mm -hmm. through, you know, mm -hmm. with, with, in, in regards to their, their state club and, and, you know, their re relationship 
you know, with all that. And yeah. I mean, so were you one of the original guys then that was kind of part of the club whenever, I mean, since you've been doing this for so long or were there, was the club already started whenever there, you got into there, it? There was a club, uh, started before I got into it. And, um, I remember the very first meeting I went to, it was down by Lake Pleasant, uh, Neil Brown, a Falconer friend in Flagstaff. And I went down to this and I'm trying to think of when it was, it would have been 1978. Um, pretty sure that would be, that would be right. And there were, um, a couple of people, uh, uh, Ron Palmer and Doug Griffith. I remember being there and they're, they're still around and, and active, um, it was a couple other individuals. I, their their names uh, evade me at the at the time, but it was a very small uh, club. But they, you know, were doing what they could. And, and uh, Arizona, back in that era, uh, had I think one of the hardest fights to get falconry legalized of of any of the states around. I mean, it was it was a whole lot of um, issues that we had to overcome with various anti-groups and people that were adamant that we should not be allowed to do this thing because it's an elitist sport and it's going to eventually, you know, I, don't, I can't it's even the follow their argument. It's whole perception yeah. versus reality thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 They just, so. But, you know, the thing that always amazed me is even when you were talking with these antis who were uh, avidly opposed to falconry, you'd pull a bird out and let them see it and they're just whoa, that's so cool. You know, I was like, okay. You know. <laughs> well, and that's, and that's how we usually start gaining ground and getting yeah. ahead is yeah. with the education and, and with that kind of interaction. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, I mean, well, I mean, no club generally starts off big and, you know, I mean, and, and that's why it's important, I think, in a lot of ways for a state's club to have involvement and continued growth and stuff because, you know, you do have strength in numbers and, you know, your advocacy usually has a better <laughs> effect, yeah. you know, when you have yeah. more people behind it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but, um, but yeah, so, I mean, it's been around for, for a while then the state club has. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Well, let's go ahead then and get a couple more, one or two more. If you, if you can think of a couple off the top of your head, um, you know, like uh, we always like to discuss, you know, those favorite hunting stories and, you know, bird stories, or sometimes they're, you know, the stories include both aspects of things. Usually, you know, the favorite bird is involved a lot of times, sometimes in the favorite hunting story, not always the case, but, yeah. but, uh, I mean, what, what couple of, uh, of, of those stories or birds off the top of your head, um, would you like to share with us today? You think? All the things that stand out is I, I had this little Barbary that I got from Les Boyd, and it had some Cassini peregrine in it as well. But he was, he was a little bigger than your typical Barbary, but but not by much. Uh, small bird, and that bird just absolutely loved to fly. Uh, first time I ever free flew that bird, it was up for 45 minutes, just flying around, just <laughs> flying around, having a gas. And that bird would typically once I got it trained in, in hunting and all, it would fly off and just disappear. And initially that was very troubling to me. And I realized that rather than chasing after the bird, just stay where I'm at. And when he's done doing whatever he's doing, <laughs> he's going to come back. And he, she actually was female. Uh, she'd be so high. You couldn't tell she was there. The only reason I knew that she was, coming back over the duck pond is that I'd take my uh, receiver and I'd, I'd get a signal up overhead and I'd go, okay, well, time to go flush the ducks. And you'd flush the ducks and you'd have to keep your eye on the ducks and listen for that wind whistling off your bird's feathers. And, you know, initially it would sound very far away and then it'd just get closer and closer and just like a jet fighter. <laughs> and once you got that vector, you could turn and look and see the last of of that flight and it was just amazing i mean how high this bird must have been it'd be nice to have a one of the gps, GPS systems now that was, yeah. gonna, that was gonna be my next question for you is i mean i'm, I'm sure this was probably pre-gps oh, yeah, right oh yeah this yeah. was this was uh in the 80s um, oh, okay 
Yeah. So back, back whenever 300 feet was 1300 feet. Yes. Yes. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And, and I don't think I was that blind. I mean, this bird was, this bird was way up there. It was, it was, um, remarkable, but that was, that was really an outstanding bird. I really enjoyed flying that. A couple of other just kind of interesting stories though. I had a, um, a little peregrine uh, that I got from a, a breeding project, a little Tiersel. And he was about, I want to say 35 days old when I got him. And when I'd start taking him out and flying him, it turned out that this bird was scared to death of other peregrines. And if a peregrine came out and either buzzed him or just came out and checked him out, he'd just freak out. I mean, he just wouldn't respond to the lure, wouldn't fly at a, a pigeon or anything. It was. But he knew he was a peregrine? Was this an, this was he an was, imprint, He was right? chamber raised. Oh, okay. So he, he was knew, chamber yeah. raised. He knew it was a peregrine, and he knew that ain't my mama. <laughs> <laughs> and this one time I was flying at Lake Mary up in Flagstaff, and a peregrine came out and wasn't harassing him. It was a big female, uh, haggard a female just kind of flew out in his direction and he freaks and he's flying around acting spastic and ends up landing in a tree and this peregrine this wild peregrine flew out and grabbed a bat just flew up right behind it grabbed a bat and carried it back to the tree that this tersel was sitting in and it was in her mouth and she's walking along the the branch toward this tersel <laughs> chopping and she's thinking, come on, Junior, take your dinner. <laughs> and he's going, you ain't my mama. And he flies <laughs> off. So she sits there, sits there and eats this bat. And then she flies out and catches another one. I mean, just right up, right up its, its tailpipe, just grabs it right out of the air. And again, goes to the new tree now that this little peregrine is trembling in, <laughs> lands on the branch, starts walking down the branch toward the tearsel, chupping. And he wouldn't have anything to do with it, flew off. So she eats this bat. She flies out after another bat, misses that bat, and just turned to a different bat that was there and caught it. So, I mean, just four bat, three, three bats in, in four attempts. You're getting a show. Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> Came back, same thing. My bird flew off. Now I'm out of here. The last I saw of that peregrine, he was flying over the horizon, and there was a full moon coming up. And it was just coming up where there was a pine tree silhouetted, right where the peregrine was flying past. And take a guess of what was sitting in that pine tree. And it <laughs> turned his head and looked and go, hey, it was a great horned owl, silhouetted by the moon. And this owl takes off after the peregrine. And so I'm freaking out, and I, I go out tracking when I found where the peregrine was. Uh, it hadn't been eaten. It was still in a tree, so I thought, okay, I'm going to come back in the morning. And I came back in the morning, and he was still freaked out, flew all over the place. I trailed that bird up past a place called A1 Mountain, um, west of, in fact, he drove by there, uh, west of Flagstaff. It was about a 70-mile difference. I mean, it uh, that bird and I lost track of it then, so I drove all over northern Arizona, looking for that bird for a week. And I decided finally, well, might as well go out to Lake Mary and just. Now, the important thing I forgot to mention was this was the first time I'd ever taken that Tiersel to Lake Mary to that area to fly. I'd never flown there before. And the elk were bugling, and they'd come out into the fields there at Lake Marion. So I thought, oh, I might as well just go back there. I've been, I've checked everywhere. I mean, I drove up to the Grand Canyon, and you name it, all over northern Arizona. Hadn't found anything of that bird. Of course, his transmitter's dead by this point. And going back to Lake Mary, to the same place that I flew him before, where he was freaked out by the, by the, uh, the, the wild peregrine. I'm sitting there looking, and all of a sudden I see this peregrine chasing bats. And then I realized, wait, that peregrine has bells on. Mm -hmm. And so I whipped out a lure, and he came right into it. He, he was, uh, shall we say, hungry. <laughs> but <laughs> to have a bird, first time I'd flown him at that spot, to fly that far away and to make it back to that spot and was doing the very thing that this wild peregrine was showing him how to do, 
I thought was absolutely amazing. And it was a week later. I mean, seven days he'd been out, out there and uh, got him back. So it was, it was uh, kind of, to me, that was kind of a remarkable uh, incident. I, I suppose I could tell you other stories of success and, and uh, um, wondrous epic tales, but one story that really <laughs> pops out in my mind is I had a, a little um, Cooper's hawk, a little Tearsel Cooper's hawk, and the Arizona Coopers are smaller than the East Coast or the East Eastern Coopers. This bird was an eight-ounce bird, and I just started flying him free, and I'm um, sneaking through the woods as much as we have woods here, to an area where I thought uh, there were some quail likely. And this bird's following along behind me. And about 10 yards behind me, all of a sudden I heard this very angry buzz of a rattlesnake. And I knew immediately what had happened. Uh, my little 8-ounce Tersel Coopers had nailed a rattlesnake. And I'm just thinking, oh, this is it. Coming. My bird's going to get killed and eaten. So I run back there, and sure enough, he had this four-foot rattlesnake by his head, and I've got a picture of it. I'll show you. So the other thing that's interesting about this is since I was just training this bird and getting him to follow and all, I hadn't really taken my flushing stick um, before. So I just would have a pole that I would swing the lure around on. It was a little horse training lure, so it was flimsy. He couldn't have done anything to pin a snake down. This was the first day that I just happened to have my flushing stick with me. So a nice six-foot-long, rigid stick. So my first reaction was to grab this, uh, pin the snake's head down with my stick, just so worse wouldn't come to worse. And then I'm sitting there looking at this. I'm going, I can't believe that bird has actually caught that snake. And... So I pulled out my cell phone and started taking pictures of it. I'm going, nobody's going to believe this. <laughs> so, so I've got some pictures of this little little Cooper's hawk hanging on to this snake for dear life. And I, I fly my birds without jesses. So I didn't have anything to secure the Coopers with. If the snake got away, he would, he would pounce right back on it. And then the advantage of surprise would be gone and then the bird would probably get killed. So I thought, well, I've got some food in my bag. I'm going to take that and throw it away so the Coopers would go over there. And he did. Unfortunately, he ate it much faster than I anticipated. So before I <laughs> was able to fully deal with the snake, um, the uh, Coopers was right back on it. And we're writhing around, and you know, it was it was a mess. But, but anyway, I, I have pictures to prove it. Uh, there was... There was that that was not the kind of hunt that I wanted, and, and, and thankfully it never happened again with that bird. But but still, it was just, I mean, I, I wouldn't believe it if I heard the story that little eight ounce Coopers had just killed a four foot rattlesnake. But, <laughs> but I was there, and, and I got pictures to prove it. So. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny, man. Like we we always have some kind of story, you know that. Uh, yeah, I mean, luckily. The times that I've had similar instances, there's been people there to witness and or, you know, have video or take pictures to whatever. But, yeah, I mean, it's just it's funny, though, how in that moment what we're thinking of. I mean, first and foremost, yeah, we're thinking of, OK, got to make sure we get our bird safely, you know, off this whatever out of this situation, whatever. But it's so funny how we instantly go to, OK, nobody's going to believe me. <laughs> you know, it's like we want like we want people to understand just what we went through in this particular yeah. scenario or whatever. And, you know, it's just like, you want to be able to share stuff, but at the same time, yeah, we as Falconers, we, we um, love to doubt and disbelieve before, yeah. <laughs> before yeah. anything else sometimes. So yeah. tales but, of fishing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, well, that's, that's funny. We, uh, yeah, I mean it, we probably could have gone a little bit more, into you know, some of your short wing experience and stuff. But I know you've got some other things that you have to do here pretty soon, and I've got to get back on the road again. So I want to – hopefully we can maybe do a part two eventually and get some more of that type of stuff. But uh, I want to go ahead and end on the same note that I've been trying to end on with most falconers that I've been doing these with recently. 
And um, you've already imparted some good advice earlier in the episode, but if there was one more piece of advice or one particular other piece of advice that sticks out in your mind to share with other prospective falconers or even current falconers, whatever the case may be, I mean, what would that be? What would you tell people or, you know, to kind of preserve for future generations, so to speak? Wow, I didn't study for that quiz. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I, I really think that Frank Bond's comment about you should treat every bird as though it's the last bird you'll ever get is really good because that encapsulates so much because to me, thinking and learning are vital to what we do and to being the best that you can be. Because I, uh, I think we should all be fanatics about being the best that we can be, training the best, you know? And so when we see that bird that has the same behavioral problems as the previous two birds that you've had, you go, okay, I'm doing something. So what is it? And to be able to think and, and to learn. So open yourself up to you know, criticisms from others, from, from help from others, you know, and just to, to learn. Because I think that's the future of the sport is that we, we have to really think. And I go back to what we were doing in 1967. I had no idea how to get a bird to hunt, how to get a bird to do this. And only through learning and unfortunately some of those were learning on our own so it was it was difficult it was slow um you know but but through learning and then finally you start meeting other falconers and you start sharing ideas and things like that and then the sport has grown from where it was to where it is now if you go back and read any of the the annals of falconry when it was first getting started back here catching wild game was not the big priority you know they would have a trained bird that would take a bagged pheasant or whatever but there really wasn't that much actual hunting and it was through you know the leaders you know at that time that that finally started learning how to really be successful and and uh, do that and you look at what falconers are doing today and it's just amazing i mean the the things that that we've been able to get our birds to do so and it's only possible from thinking and learning you know for sure. No. And, uh, yeah, no, like I said, that's, that's some great advice. And, um, like I said, hopefully that gives some, you know, another perspective for people to think about. And, and I think overall, that's probably a, a pretty good note for us to, to end on today. And, um, like I said, I, I really appreciate you taking the time and, uh, you know, it's nice getting to, to know you and to meet you for the first time. And, and, uh, like I said, this is, I'm glad that, uh, the club reached out to me and stuff because like I said, Arizona is always going to have a special place mm-hmm. in my heart in general because of my personal history and everything. So like I said, I've got some great memories in this state and, uh, yeah, I know, I, I know dog. <laughs> yeah, we've got, I've got some great memories in this state and I'll always really love being here at any point and be able to, to kind of go through the state and um you know do these talks yep, with you guys it's always been, welcome back yep. yeah well, i appreciate it and uh like i said we will uh we'll talk again soon but right. i will go ahead and, and wrap this so that you can uh, get on with your day all right well thank you very much all right appreciate you randy